Shalom Aleichem, Erev Tov. We are continuing in the life and death of Rabbi Eliezer ben Hokanus. Attached to the Google Classroom invitation, you should find a PDF taking us to the encyclopedia. We are going to continue today on page 98 of that encyclopedia. Likely, this will be our final installment in the life of Rabbi Lezer ben Hokanus. And I look forward to a more balanced learning schedule next week, Bezat Hashem. Lamrot shahaya talmido shel Rabban Yochanan ben Zakai. Even though Rabbi Lezer ben Hokanus was a student of Rabban Yochanan ben Zakai, mi bet Hillel, who was a descendant of the house of Hillel, Nika betar Shmuti. He was known as a Shemuti. That title seems to reference that perhaps he was from the camp of Shammai, meaning more conservative, if I would borrow that term, of a Chacham. For me, the Pshat in the word Shemuti is that he was in Shamta. He was excommunicated. He was in Nidui. So I don't get shaken up by the encyclopedia author's commentary here. There are even contradictions between Bechamai and Rabbi Eliezer. But because of his staunch support of traditionalism, he was more similar to the camp of Shammai. Listen, I don't like this interpretation. I don't agree with it necessarily. Yeah, but there definitely is, there are those who wish to understand that this is what it means that he was a Shemuti. I don't understand that to be the meaning of Shemuti. He was rigid in his stances like iron. He never budged from his stances in Judaism. And now, the author of this encyclopedia is going to give us a brief digest of all kinds of statements that Rabbi Eliezer made, many of them which will seem difficult to understand. I will try to do my best in the time that we have tonight to walk you through those teachings in the way that we best can. The way of Rabbi Eliezer was always to stick to the, I hate the word simple, because it's not simple, but to the plain meaning of the text. Until so much so, he explains, Ayin Tachad Ayin. That an eye for an eye, when the Torah says that we take an eye for an eye, mamash, that's literally the way that it should be interpreted. How do our rabbis understand ayin tachat ayin? Monetary value. Very good. The monetary, there's a monetary sum that is paid, tachat ayin, in place of an eye that was lost. But he says, no, ayin mamash. It's really an eye. 
בסגנונו ובדרך ביטוייו, היה עז ונמרץ. He was very bold in the way in which he spoke. וכל מאמריו מצטיינים בחריפות ומרץ. And all of his teachings have a classic, you can tell that he's the one who said them because of the sharpness with which they are said. You know, in marketing, there's a whole world behind branding, to brand something. If somebody sees your email, your newsletter, your shopping bags, your storefront, all of them represent a certain brand. An example that pops to my mind. You see certain things, you know that they were made by Apple. You just know. That's how they make their things. They look a certain way. They're branded a certain way. Rabbi Yezel's Torah was branded in how sharp the things that he said were. And we already got a taste of that yesterday. When the rabbis come to visit him, he complains why they haven't come. He tells them they're going to, each of them are going to die miserable deaths. He is not an easygoing personality by any long shot. He had some pretty extreme stances when it came to social and religious issues. I want to say that when we say extreme, it means that he's on one side of a spectrum. We have a hard time in Judaism today with which people are busy trying to reconcile teachings of our Chachamim with values of the West that they are so convinced are the only truths in the world. And as such, you find that apologetics have uh, been tripping over themselves for a couple hundred of years to try to make our rabbis the most ideal citizens of the West that possibly could have been. But really, it's an exercise in futility. I don't need to accept. Remember the shiul that I gave? We just uploaded a shiul today about Hanukkah. Uh, we want autonomy. We're not looking for our freedoms. We're not looking for you to love us. We just want the right to believe and say the things that we say. Rabbi Eliezer represents a certain camp in Chachmei Israel. He's not the camp of Chachmei Israel. He does not speak in the name of all of the Chachamim. The fact is that he was thrown out of the Sanhedrin. But when we analyze his viewpoints, it's okay to say, this is something we accept that he said this. Is that the halakha? Is that the final word? Not always. But it requires you to be able to not lump in all of the Chachamim to the same. Imagine this, if I can give you an example. I'm separating between them light years. Imagine saying that all the presidents of the United States of America were the same. Because they were presidents of the United States of America. It must be they all believed the same things and had the same policies and led the country the same way. It would be an absurd thing to think that way. Chachamim are not a homogenous group. Chachamim are made up of many different opinions. Yes, in certain areas, such as legal areas, there are bottom line conclusions the Sanhedrin has to make. But there are also matters, we've called them before, the duties of the heart. Chovot halevavot, chovat halevavot. The duties of the heart, which are not bound by legislation. You don't legislate what a person believes. We legislate practice, but not belief. It doesn't mean that belief is a free-for-all. But it means there's a much broader spectrum of opinions in the realm of the live, the heart, than there is in the law. And those are two very different things. When people conflate Judaism with just a religion, they don't know how to differentiate between things that are laws and things that are, they're not opinions, but they're matters of the heart. They, they don't know how else to tell you that uh, than in those words. And let's read a few of them. And uh, the bottom of page 98 in the encyclopedia. 
We're actually the last three words, so we're going to be on page 99. Very interesting to note are his words regarding teaching Torah to women. Rabbi Yezer is quoted saying the following two teachings, maybe even three. In Mishnah Sota, chapter 3, he says, Kol ha-melamed bito Torah ki'ilu limeda tiflut. Anyone who teaches his daughter Torah is teaching her tiflut. Tiflut? I don't wish to give you an exact legal definition of tiflut, but it's something that's not good. Okay, say that way. There, it's negative to teach one's daughter Torah because it's as if he's teaching her tiflut. In Masechet Sota, in Yerushalmi, Yisrefu divrei Torah. Rabbi Yezor says it's better that the words of the Torah should be burned. And they should not be given to women. In Yoma, in the Babylonian Talmud, Rabbi Yezor is quoted as saying, What is Pelech? You know when they used to spin wool, they have those elaborate... Women are good for spinning wool. That's what women are good for. Anyone offended yet? I take back my very sympathetic stance towards him now. Marlene, don't get so ahead of yourself. Let's look at the Rambam. If you'll do me a favor, open up the Safariya. I want to read to you just how this, this opinion of Rebbe is codified as law by Maimonides. And if you go to Safaria, now I hope it's obvious to anybody here that my stance on learning, women learning Torah is that men and women should all be learning Torah. I hope there's no one here who, who thinks that I have any other stance. Is that which part of the Torah? All, all of the Torah. Men and women should be studying all of the Torah. And by whatever a man shouldn't be studying, a woman shouldn't be studying either. Uh, whatever a woman shouldn't be studying, a man shouldn't be studying. In the sense, I, I don't believe at all that there is value to spending hours and hours and hours of one's day studying the pilpul method of uh, the Talmud. It's a waste of time. I, I know that that's not the prevalent opinion among the contemporary Orthodox community, but that's exactly why I don't care. Uh, this method of pilpul is not the way. When the things that we're required to learn, a Jewish person every day must be praying. Of course, emunah is the first thing in the whole world. And how do you do emunah? Not by clapping your hands in a field and not by dancing on your head and doing somersaults. Definitely not by uh, meditating on a magic carpet. You do emunah. Emunah is through tefillah. Your tefillah is direct connection with emunah. The way that you pray. I see people are, are in such a confused state that their prayer is so not meaningful that they need to do all kinds of other things. Rabbi, it would be so much better for me to be standing on a mountaintop meditating than to be saying tefillah. That's because there's something wrong with your tefillah. And if it's, maybe it's not your fault. It could be there's something wrong with the way your community does tefillah. It could be there's something wrong with the way the whole world is doing tefillah. I don't know. But tefillah is supposed to be that most powerful, connective experience that tefillah is. And if you've ever been, I can think of an example. If you've ever been with us on Yom Kippurim, an hour before Yom Kippurim is over, and you just feel that high that everybody is in, and tefillah, that's tefillah. That's what tefillah looks like. There's nothing to, to apologize for that there's, tefillah is not meaningful. Uh, when it comes to learning, Tanakh, Torah first and foremost. I hear people can quote every rabbi under the sun, but Moshe Rabbeinu, they don't know how to quote. Then the Nevi'im, Yishayahu, they don't know how to quote. That's like all the Nevi'im are nothing compared to the rabbi that was born 
20 years ago in New York, whoever is the newest craze in the block. We have a Torah, we have Nevi'im, we have Kituvim, David HaMelech, Shlomo HaMelech, they wrote books for us. It's time for us to know those books, not just leave them to the Christians. It's inheritance of the house of Yaakov, not of the house of the Vatican. That's what it says, right? It's ours. Next, Mishnayot. There's value to learn Mishnayot. Talmud. Which part of the Talmud? The parts that are relevant. You don't need to be learning Halakha from the Talmud right now. Halakha, learn elsewhere. Agadot of the Talmud, they're important for you to learn. To learn them properly, of course. Not to believe in them like fairy tales. And to skip the ones that don't make sense. And to know how to learn the correct ones properly from a Tamikham. Next, every person should know the Mishneh Torah of the Rambam. Everybody, everybody. Shulchan Aruch, all four sections. And then anything else, books of Musa, all the books of Musa. I can't list you all of them, but all of them. From Hamaspikl of the Hashem, of Rabbeinu Avraham ben Arambam, Misilat Esharim, of Rabbeinu Shachem Lutato, to all of the books that Archamim wrote that guide us on the proper path. The Kuzari, what a book of the Kuzari is. To know the Kuzari, which Jewish man or woman is exempt from studying any of the things that I mentioned right now. And so that's my stance in terms of Torah and learning, all of those things that every one of us has to spend our life studying. All of them, you have to study them. There's no exemption. Let's read what the Rambam writes. If you go to Halakha and you click on Mishneh Torah. Could you put the, the, the uh, link into the chat? Would that be possible? I could try. So if you go to Mishneh Torah, then you click on Torah study. I'm not used to reading the Rambam in my iPad, but I forgot my Rambam at home today. So if you go to chapter 1, subsection uh, 13, I'm going to send this out now in the Zoom box. Some reason it's not going through. It doesn't send the link for whatever reason. And there's a limit on characters in the Zoom chat box. But you could follow along the Hebrew. The Rambam writes. Yeah, that's says the Rambam, Isha Shalamda Torah. A woman who studies Torah. Yesh la sachar 
she receives reward. By the way, we say that a woman who studies Torah receives reward. Is it then forbidden for a woman to study Torah? No. So understand here. From when the Ramban says that a woman who studies Torah receives a reward, you learn that there's nothing wrong with her studying Torah. We're going to then have to explain a few things. But wait. There's a famous question. I taught this in my UK class regarding Rabbanit Farcha Sassoon. Whether the blessing that you recite over a great Torah scholar, do you recite that blessing over a female Torah scholar? And there was a Chacham who wanted to say that it was forbidden for her to study Torah. So of course you can't say a blessing over her because she was forbidden from studying Torah. So she did an Avera. Why would you bless a woman who did an Avera? Now, let's read the Rambam. She has reward. But it's not the same as the reward of a man. Why? Because she's not commanded to study Torah. Again, let's explain. In Halakha, there are always things that you are commanded in and things that you are not commanded in. The things that you are not commanded in but you're allowed to do, you receive reward for them. But it's not necessarily a reward like the person who was commanded. This is almost the opposite of how we think about things here in this world, which is if you do the things you don't need to do, you're considered a hero. But the ones that you need to do, ah, everyone should do them. It's harder. Imagine I tell Elchanan, go to your room and clean everything up. Now, he doesn't want to do it. But there are days where he wakes up, he wants to impress me, so he cleans up the whole house. And he wants to show up. But imagine the moment I tell him, Elchanan, wait, you're in the middle of cleaning your room? Go to your room and finish cleaning. Now he doesn't want to clean at all. Because I ruined it for him. I made it an obligation. It's an obligation, it's not so fun anymore. There's a reward for someone who's obligated more than one who's not obligated. And this is a rule all across the board with all mitzvot, that one who is obligated in a mitzvah receives more reward than one who is not obligated in a mitzvah. Practically, can I ask you a question? What does it mean? that one receives more reward. Is there any practical ramification to receiving more or less reward? No. Not in this world. Not in this world. Nothing you have to worry about here. Now, says the Rambam, And even though there is a reward, our rabbis commanded, instructed, that a man should not teach his daughter Torah. Because the majority of women, their mind is not trained to study properly. I promise you I will go through this and read it again. Okay, so don't get upset yet. Please don't log out of the class yet. All right. Because they transform the words of Torah to words of Havai. I'm going to borrow a term, nonsensical uh, t- teachings. Because of their, it's not inferiority of their mind, but inferiority of the way in which they think. Amru Chachamim, our rabbis tell us, Kol HaMelamed et Bito Torah, Ki'ilu Any man who teaches his daughter Torah, it's as if he has taught her tiflut. That's the teaching of Rabbi Eliezer, right here, right? That's what Rabbi Eliezer said. When is this said? Regarding the oral law. 
but the written Torah, lo yilamed otah lechatchila, ideally he should not teach it to her, ve'im nimedah, and if he teaches it to her, eno kim lamedah tiflut. It's not as if he teaches her tiflut. Okay, Chava, where does the Rambam stand? In the beginning he seems to say that a woman can study Torah. Now he seems to be telling us that that our rabbis told us that a woman should not study Torah. And then some other things that aren't so kind over here. I want to hear your thoughts. Okay, so here we're going to say it's a different generation, different circumstances, role models are more traditional, uh, roles, uh, family roles are more traditional. Okay, you know, I... Okay, serving Hashem was different for men and women. Tell me, tell me in which way Avodat Hashem is better than through the learning of Torah. But the Torah, Torah, Talmud Torah connect kulam. What's greater than Talmud Torah? Okay, so you're saying something similar. Rabbi Eliezer says the mutash is refuted for Torah. Bura is a great example, by the way, because there's a legend that was created after the Talmud, which is intending to disparage Bura's Limud Torah by saying that she did some pretty terrible thing. Are you familiar with the, what I'm talking about? No. So Bura is the wife of Rabbi Meir Balanes. And she learned Torah so much so that our rabbis would consult with her. She would enter the Ben Midrash and say things and teach things. Once there was a famous encounter between her and Rabbi Yosei Gidili. Rabbi Yosei Gidili was walking along the road and he said, what's the way to the Galilee? How do I get there? And she tells him, Gililai Tipshai, you stupid Galilean. Didn't our rabbis instruct you not to speak excessively to a woman? You should have just said, which Galilee? Don't say more than you need to say to a woman. There's a Rashi there. A Rashi quotes an ancient text in which Bruria, I'm, I'm mindful of my audience, Bruria ends up having a relationship outside of her marriage and has to flee to another country. has to flee to another country. She dies. A crazy story over there. It's not even an Agadah. It's a fabrication. There is no rabbinic source for this. This was created intentionally and, and spread by a very certain brand of rabbi who wanted to suppress this personality, which was Buya. It's interesting you mentioned Rabbi Meir because there was another story involving Rabbi Meir about the woman who used to come to his lectures on Friday night. Oh, very good. Kind of being a jealous prostitute tried to get her to stay home and she was all jealous of Rabbi Mayer and Rabbi Mayer wanted to come 
wanted her to come and like help solve the problems, make peace between this woman and her husband in a way that like he would be okay with her coming. And apparently nobody is like shocked that a woman is attending her lecture. Very good. Lectures. Meaning the whole the whole conversation there is not about how is she learning in the Berakaneset. The question there is the, the problem with her evil husband who's getting in her way. But there's nobody there who's upset that she's coming to learn Torah. That's very good. So, but for Shlombai, she's there. She must have been noticeable to him, you know. So she wasn't like hiding under, you know, like under the table. <laughs> so he knew he was knowing all along that she was there. And remember, there was that other woman with Rabbi Yoshua. What is it? His mother used to bring him when he was a baby to the bed of Midash. Stay with him because he was a baby, and she wouldn't have left him there alone as a baby with no mother there to take care of him. So apparently, like it was done that some women who had the ability and the time you know to, to attend these things would go but it was probably the exception rather than the rule okay so all of that let me let me tell, all of those stories you mentioned are only going to come to prove the way in which I want to read you the Rambam okay I want to read you this Rambam and I'm I'm not in love with people who apologize for Chachamim so this is not an apologetic way of reading the Rambam but I believe this is the, the way to read the Rambam in fact not so long ago I had a discussion with Rabbi uh, Abe Faur about this, who put out a video, Baruch Hashem, he put out a video about this, in which he says exactly this, and I'm, I'm very happy that this is the way in which you should read the Rambam. I want to read this to you now again. Watch. Is a woman allowed to learn Torah? Yes. Is she obligated to learn Torah? No. That's already... Maran Shukhan Aruch writes that a woman does say Berkot Torah in the morning. Why? Because there, much of the Torah that is relevant to women, wo- women have to learn, and therefore, therefore, they have an obligation to say Berkot Torah. That's why women say Berkot Torah in the morning. Okay, but the question here is about the second part. If women are allowed to learn Torah, then what is so bad about a father teaching his daughter Torah? Why is this such a miserable thing? Let's read here. Ve'od, in the middle of this paragraph. Even though a woman has reward when she studies Torah, our rabbis instructed. Rabbi Eib Faur told me that he heard from his father that every time you find the term our rabbis instructed, this is not a matter of national legislation, but this is a matter of personal instruction. Our chachamim didn't legislate anything about teaching Torah to There is no avera in teaching Torah to your daughter, but there was a tzivui, there was an instruction. You would go to the rabbi and say, there's good advice. Don't teach your daughter Torah. Why? Careful. Wait. We have rules about which type of men are allowed to learn Torah. I'm sure you're familiar with those halachot. Explicitly in the Shulchan Aruch, a rabbi is not allowed to teach a male student who doesn't fit a very specific set of criteria. Someone whose intellect works properly, someone who's able to think logically, someone who has good character traits. There's a very rigid, um, a very narrow definition of which man is allowed to learn Torah. It's not a free-for-all. It's forbidden for a rabbi, lamed talmid she'eno hagun. So here you have a woman. A woman who, yes, in the time in which the Chachamim were living, women weren't educated at all. And therefore her mind is not trained in the way in which a person is supposed to think through Talmud Torah. Now it sounds like what you were saying until now, it doesn't. Wait until I explain further. 
אלה הן מוציאות דברי תורה לדברי הוואי. They have this nature in which they take the words of Torah and they turn it into words of nonsensical nature. Because of their lack of ability in studying properly. I'm going to explain to you what it means to take Divrei Torah to Divrei Havai. And again, I will send you later a video of Rabbi Eva Faur explaining this in very clear terms. Divrei Torah to Divrei Havai, there's a halakha. Halakha says that after Chanukah, I might have told you this yesterday already, after Chanukah, all the leftover oil in your candles, you have to burn them. Assuming that they're mitzvah candles, the mitzvah and the wicks and the... And so that was the minhag, not on the eighth day like the Ashkenazim, but the ninth day, for example, in Morocco, there were big burnings, like like Bomeh almost, like big burnings of candles and wicks and oil. It was a celebration. We have a video about the Chanukah in Morocco there. And I saw a video that came through my family WhatsApp group, not from my side of the family, in which they're telling people that it's a big sigulat to jump through the fire, to hop over this direction, hop over backwards, hop over forwards, a sigulat to get married, da 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 and you can imagine that when you have some kind of crazy God, and your Judaism makes no sense, there's no logic, there's no a- analysis of text, there's no, it's a very analphabetic Judaism. That what, I mean, maybe God wants me to jump forwards and backwards and fire. That's all that's holding me back from getting married. If I don't make, I met someone recently, it's a year and a half since her daughter was born. And it was, she was born during COVID in the beginning, and the Bet Knesset were closed. They didn't make a kiddush for her in the Bet Knesset. So they're making a kiddush now. So why are you making a kiddush now? Like, didn't you sell your family? No, everybody knows. We have to make a kiddush now. Ah, because we know that if you don't make a kiddush for your daughter, she'll never get married. That's a great rumor started by some brotherhood or sisterhood of a synagogue, the Kiddush Club or whatever the catering companies. I don't know. Someone said, if you don't sponsor a kiddush in the Bet Knesset, your daughter will never get married. Which kind of God doesn't let daughters get married? Because their parents didn't sponsor. You can imagine in the Talmudic times, they, uh, for sure they were sponsoring Kiddush in the synagogue of Rabbi Meir Balhanes, right? It's, uh, Hanan's getting good training, you see? It's all about the money, Chava. It's all about the money. And it's not monopoly money thereafter. It's real money. But if your God is crazy, then your religion is crazy, and all kinds of crazy things happen. People take the mitzvot, precious mitzvot, a mezuzah. A mezuzah, it's a precious mitzvah, Yichud Hashem. The whole world walks by our door and sees we believe in one God. And what do we turn that mezuzah into? Some type of amulet. Something's going wrong in your home? Go check your mezuzot. If this is happening there, go check your mezuzot. Oh, the word in Levavecha was a mistake. That's why the guy had a heart attack. Da, da, da. They turned the whole mitzvah of mezuzah into nonsensical things. I would tell you that today, all Jews, not forget women, all the men and women that I'm seeing in the, especially, I can't talk about other communities, but in the Orthodox community, they're all taking divrei Torah and turning them into divrei Havai. Everything has become superstitious now. Everything is some type of magical thinking, some, some amulet, some potion, some, some wonder worker, some miracle. Everything is crazy. And so nobody should be allowed to study Torah according to this standard of studying Torah. Absolutely. So this is what it says. When he talks, En data mechuvenet hitlamed, the mind of a woman in this generation, when Chachamim were instructing personally, not privately, not nationally, the reason they didn't legislate this is because this doesn't apply in all generations. But in their generation, they observed a very sad fact, that it was the women who were running after all kinds of magical things, and they were afraid that if we were to teach them Torah, 
they would take these words of Torah and strengthen all of the crazy things they believe. Exactly what's happening today, but today it's not exclusively the right of women. Today it's the exclusive right of all Jewish people. That's right, which is why we wouldn't be allowed to teach them Torah either. But again, this is a private, legis- uh, private advice because it's not something you can legislate forever. It's not always going to be a problem forever. I think no, the Rambam wouldn't tell you that in today's world, women are more prone to magical thinking than men are. It just seems to be a, an illness that is everywhere, that surrounds us everywhere. Chamim tell us, they warn us about their generation. The more wives you have in your life, the more sorcery you'll have in your life. But I don't think it's so long ago. I, I know people, I had someone come to Beda Knesset, his grandmother in Baghdad was the lady who was in charge of all the lead pouring and the eyeballs and the lead and all the, all the sorcery of that. Lead. That was her job. It wasn't so long ago that our people, I, mean, I would like to tell you it doesn't happen today, but you better believe. When I, when it took, it took a long time from when I met my wife until we got married. Somewhere about a year into that, somebody in my wife's family said, you know, the reason you're not getting married is because there's an Ein Hara on you. And we have to take you to this lead pourer. The lead pourer shall pour some lead over your head in a pot and a bubble in the eyeballs. Mamash craziness that people believe in. So, no, they wanted to do it to my wife. They wanted to free her from her Ein Hara that is attached to her. If anything, the only person who gets free there is the person who pours the lead. She makes a lot of money. But the lady that they wanted to take my wife to, she's a notorious uh, electronic smuggler. Before she became the Rebetzin who poured lead, she was the, the la- lady who used to pay people to smuggle iPhones through Israeli uh, customs. Uh, she has a very big reputation. Maybe she could rid you of all kinds of Ein Hara. Who knows what else she smuggles out of you. So this, Amu Chachamim. And therefore our rabbis told us, Kol Anybody who teaches his daughter Torah is as if he's teaching her tiflut. He's forcing her Torah into a negative space. So what's the purpose of this teaching? Do you notice that there's no prohibition here against teaching a woman Torah? There's no prohibition here against a rabbi teaching a woman Torah. Rather, where's the prohibition here? A father teaching his daughter. What does that mean? father teaching his daughter is it referring to a woman who's like younger okay it could be it could be of any age I'm going to tell you it's not about the age tell me what else about the study a father teaching a daughter as opposed to what else Isn't he supposed to be teaching his sons? Okay, so Marlene, it's, it's, here it doesn't seem to be a distraction, like he's not going to teach his sons and therefore he can't teach his daughters. It's not a matter of distraction, but you're on to something. Let me help you out. The two ways in which you can learn Torah. You can learn from your father in an informal fashion around the dining room table, whenever the two of you have time, whenever you guys get together, whatever you're going to be studying that day. Or you can learn Torah in a formal fashion, by enrolling in a yeshiva and an academy of Torah study. You see, at home, we're concerned that given the, the way in which women were taught to think then, 
we're afraid that women will learn Torah in an informal fashion, and they will use their Torah and take it to all kinds of interesting places. But if you send them to a yeshiva to study by Chachamim, in an environment permeated by Chachamim, Chachamim are able to teach your daughter Torah in a way that they will ensure that's what a yeshiva is. A yeshiva is an academy. We only allow, there's an entrance exam here to this academy. You can't just go to any academy that you want. You want to get into Harvard, you have to work hard for it. You get inside, they're going to make sure that you think a certain way, that you model a certain way, that you're taught a certain way. Chachamim were not against women studying Torah. They were afraid of a world in which women were to study Torah in an unregulated fashion, which would give power to all of these people who were taking the Torah and transforming it into craziness. But if we could enroll our daughters in an academy, there were Talmidei Chachamim, that would be willing to take our daughters and teach them Torah in an organized fashion. So, you mentioned a few stories. Uh, the lady who went to the Beit Knesset of Meir, there is nothing wrong with her learning Torah there for the very simple reason that she is going to an academy to study Torah from a Chacham who will make sure that the Torah that is taught is taught correctly. The only thing I would change in this whole teaching is I would say that a person should be careful in general in the world that we live in today to teach not only his daughter but also his sons. To make sure that when Torah is taught, and I'm not talking about the yeshivot you guys are thinking of, but that when we make sure that Torah is taught, it should be taught by real chachamim who truly know how to understand texts, who are able to guide our children, our families in understanding Torah correctly so that they will not take the words of Torah and turn them into words of havait, words of nonsense, words of craziness, words of magical thinking. Very good. So I think that, unfortunately, our rabbis live in a generation where women in general, women's study was not a thing. And so the women that we know who studied, they were, like Pam said before, exceptions to the rule. That's what they were. But not exceptions to the rule because our rabbis didn't allow it. Exceptions to the rule because, unfortunately, until not so long ago, women were not given the opportunity to learn in Judaism. And I have my own videos about that. If you'd like to, I may have a video on Rabbanit Flora Sasson. If you could please look that up afterwards. If you never watched it, please watch it. And you'll see how proud not only I am of those women who joined the Ben Midrash and learned, but how the Chachamim, how excited they were to see a lady like Rabbanit Farcha Sasson who could get up and teach Torah and, and speak in Yeshivot and learn Gemara and Rashi and Tosafot and things that really made... Chachamim proud. There was nothing, nobody ever worried that that would happen. The fear was the other way. And I, I'll tell you the truth. And I'm, maybe I should not record this, but I'll say it anyways. I've been around this world for a little bit of time. Not as long as some of you, but for a little bit of time. And I've observed in my life, outside of our kihila. Somebody asked me why we don't do Rosh Chodesh parties for women in our kihila. And you know, I, I, it, was, it caught me off guard. The Rabbanit, I said, Rabbanit, what do you think? And the Rabbanit said very simply, she's like, you know, we don't do anything that's like, we don't have men's football night and we don't have women's Rosh Chodesh parties where they make menorahs or paint their nails. or like we just It's not our thing, really. And I'm sure that there are ladies in the world who need that and men in the world who need that and they can find that in all the other communities in the world that exist. But by us, even when we get together for an event, for a dinner, for a party, for, it's always around Limut Torah in some way or another. We're always learning, we're talking, we're thinking. And so in our, in our little world, it's not such a big world, but our little world, we don't really see the value in that type of thing. But I'll tell you, when's the last time that you saw in a community an advanced halakha study offered to women? Somebody sent me an email recently. She wants to study Choshen Mishpat. 
But all of the programs of Chosh and Mishpat are closed to her. Because they don't let women in, only men. So where is she going to find a place for a woman to study Chosh and Mishpat? Then Baruch Hashem, there are many places today that are starting to teach Torah. I'm not, I'm not here to say that they're not. But rather, it's still a thing that you go to communities in the world and the option for men is Daf Yomi and Mishnah Be'uah and Aruch HaShulchan class. And for women, it's uh, Parsha 101 and Chala baking with the Rebetzin on Thursday nights. That's what's offered. And so we're still living in that world. And unfortunately, unfortunately, I would love to tell you that the women are boycotting these Rebetzins in mass and they have no followings. But the more I'm watching the Jewish world, there's a Rabbanit of sorts. She's an artist Rabbanit in Israel. They send me a video of her, full auditorium, full auditorium. She's dancing on stage, pyrotechnics, fireworks behind her. They're, uh, everybody's dead, they're screaming at the top of their lungs. Nachman me'uman, blah, 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 blah. And the whole, the whole auditorium. And I would argue that if they would say, you know what, let's pause. Let's ask, uh, let me think of a if Chamba Yosef was alive, let's ask Chamba Yosef to come to this auditorium and teach everybody a class on Hilchot Pesach. I promise you there would be three or four ladies left in that auditorium. Because for whatever reason, the world, maybe the Jewish world is last in terms of development, is still trying to condition our daughters that it's much better to tie red strings and go holy water and rabbi's graves and all the other magical things they wish to do than the value of sitting in the Bedamidash. I wish to sit in the house of a Kalifah. I've told you before, I have boys and girls. My boys, I know that even if the yeshivot that I would like to send them to are not perfect, I have options in the world of where to send my sons to yeshiva. To my daughters, I don't have options. I don't know where I can send my daughter to learn that it's not until 3 o'clock in the afternoon or 5 o'clock in the afternoon. I want her to be able to learn night seder. I want her to be able to know that she doesn't have to worry about coming home or babysitting for somebody. She can learn Torah for five years or six years or seven years, however long she has, until she goes to university and B'lat Hashem has her own family. Where? Where can I find that? And those things hurt me. I stay up awake at night, afraid. Not for my sons. My sons, they might find yeshivot that are crazy and will help adjust them. For a year. For a year. What about high school? What about the year after the year in Israel? If you're a guy, you can go to yeshiva until you're dead, you can go to yeshiva. You can learn. Non, no one bothers you from learning. Nobody's trying to tell you. By the way, I know the seminaries. Half the classes in seminary are not about learning. They're about getting married. So at the end of the day, they're not even learning. It's even the half of the day, they're not even learning. And not belittling the idea of people getting married. There's the last thing you're going to hear from me. But we're living in a world in which this isn't even an opportunity. So, the reading of the Rambam that is correct is that our Chachamim do not legislate anything regarding teaching your daughter's Torah. There's no prohibition. But in their ideal world, someone would send their daughter to a place which could teach them Torah in the most organized, methodical fashion possible. Because that would give her the best option than how to become a Talmidah Chachamah in her own right. Talmidat Chachamim in her own right. And we're very far away from that. Even in the Jewish world, we think we're so advanced today. We're so far away from the ideal of offering a place which, forget, women, men, men, where can a man really go to learn Torah properly? They teach Torah properly. They read Torah properly. So I took a tangent on learning Torah for women. I didn't want anyone to be left here thinking that our stance is that you should burn the Torah and not hand it to women. 
Chaz Shalom, that wasn't the stance, but that was definitely a teaching of Rabbi Eliezer ben Hokunus. Before I go on to the next teachings of Rabbi Eliezer, anybody have any questions or comments they wish to add or ask about this? I have two questions. First one is relating to what you just said about the opportunities for women to learn Torah at a high level. So back then, since there wasn't you know compulsory education for girls, um, and a lot of women grew up without the like education in their younger years. Um, most of the women who were attending these things were, as you said, exceptional and were probably older, had kids. Um, you know, had maybe were upper class, you know, that had more opportunities. Um, yet, if a woman was motivated to learn Torah at a high level, what options did she have? So she could be taught by her father, if her father was a chacham or something, or she could attend the men's yeshiva. Yeah. And pardon me, but if you're younger, especially, you know, going to a men's yeshiva that's almost all men and there's like one or two women, like I could kind of imagine that might lead to um, awkward or possibly even inappropriate situations. Um, and maybe that's why Rabbi Eliezer had a dim view of the modesty of that kind of arrangement. It could be. Um, it could be. That's something to consider. I hate to read negatively into things, but thinking about the realities of human nature and the situation in which that might be found, and based on personal experience, um, yeah, I'm going to leave that right there. The second question I had was, so according to the Rambam of what you copy-pasted right here, he says at the end, So he's suggesting that there's a difference between Torah and Torah The Torah she could be taught, um, you know, maybe like like it's you know b'diavad, like maybe not necessarily the best idea according to him, but you know, okay. Um, how is it that the Rambam is separating Torah Shebechtav and Torah Shebaal How does one learn Torah Shebechtav without learning Torah Shebaal and make any sense of it? So I think that in general we study Torah Shebechtav. Torah Shebechtav on its own is not a limud until we get to the writings of our rabbis. So. Torah Shebikhtav, you turn to teach Torah Shebikhtav, you're teaching a child, presumably, how to read properly with vowels and cantillation marks, ta'amim, to teach how to read properly, Hebrew, how to memorize verses, how to read Parashat HaShavua, how to know the Haftarot, the, the Ketubim, the Tehillim, especially such books. There's not much limud that's going on there. Where things start to get dangerous in terms of interpreting things incorrectly is when you open up the realm of rabbinic law. In the realm of rabbinic Torah, there's all kinds of statements that you could, if you're not trained properly in how to study them. By the way, usually there is a danger in, in Tanakh also. And we're going to see, actually a little bit later, that uh, Rashi does mention a certain danger in studying Tanakh. Too much Tanakh can make a person not believe in God. It's a very French-German attitude, and that the Tanakh is dangerous. But each camp would have a different approach. But there is a difference. Torah Bikhtav is a little, it's not simpler in the sense that it's uh, less important, but it's simpler in the sense that it's the type of study that we teach is 
is not the same in terms of logic and extrapolating things as we study when we study Torah Shabbat Be'er. Which is the purpose of Torah Shabbat Be'er. But usually when we're teaching Torah Shabbat it's if you've ever seen how they teach in a, in a yeshiva, how they teach Torah Shabbat they chant the Pasuk once, they chant it again, they chant it the next time, and then they memorize it, they go to the next one. And then by the end of the year, the kids know a certain amount of chapters by heart, and they, they know enough Hebrew to know what it means, but nobody's sitting there to... By the way, there's a mistake. The mistake that's done the other way is when we learn Mikra with too many commentaries. I, I'm, I think it's, one of a, it's a miserable development in Jewish tradition that people are so divorced from the literal text of the Tanakh. Why kids are taught not Parashat the Shavuah, they're taught the Midrash of the Shavuah. I don't need my kids to know Midrashim. I don't want them to know Midrashim. When they're old enough to learn Midrashim, let them learn Midrashim. Even when it comes to too many commentaries. There's an interesting, I won't share this with you, but Rashi, people always learn the Torah according to Rashi. They learn the Torah according to the Ramban, and the Torah according to Ibn Ezra. People don't realize that when Rashi wrote a commentary on the Torah, he assumed that you first learned the Torah according to the Torah. And only then did you come through to learn the Torah in a different lens, the way he was looking at it. And according to the way Ibn Ezra was looking at it. But there was no place in which you didn't know what the Torah meant, and you were just reading directly Rashi. It's almost like... I have, I have a lot to say about that. But this is a matter of the way in which we study today being incorrect. Hey, I used to tell that to the... To, um... Like, like Christians, they read the, the, the New Testament before they read the Old Testament, what they call the Old Testament. So, once they read the New Testament, they read the Tanakh with Christian glasses. So people do that with Rashi. They read all the Rashi, Rashi, Rashi. When they read the Tanakh, they read it with Rashi glasses. And but chance to think. And what I'm telling you, that's very good. And what I'm telling you is that I don't. It's not disparaging to Rashi. Rashi didn't intend for you to read the Torah according to Rashi. He wanted you to read the Torah first according to the Torah, and then entertain his ideas, his commentaries along the way, as a secondary or third reading, but not as the reading of the Torah. That's. You know, somebody once asked Rabbi Uri Sharki in Israel. Why, if living in Eretz Israel is so central to the Torah, why is it almost not a discussion among the rabbis of the Talmud? There, there are discussions, but it's not... As much as the Torah always talks about going to Eretz Israel, living in Eretz Israel, we're going to come back to Eretz Israel, living outside of Eretz Israel, the, the, the Gemara is much more mellow in general about Eretz Israel. He said very simply, he said similar to this, that our rabbis assume when you're reading the Talmud that you have already learned the Tanakh. You're not an ignoramus in Tanakh, meaning you've already embodied... I need to live in Eretz Israel. And so they have no need to repeat all of that for you. The problem is that if you look at certain Jewish groups today who don't read the Tanakh at all, and then they only read the Talmud, I'm not going to mention names of groups to you, those groups almost always come out almost anti-living in Eretz Israel. The reason being is they're reading the Talmud without the Tanakh. It's like reading Rashi without reading the Chumash. When I once asked somebody, oh, you have Semicha, so what do Sephardim, uh, I don't know what Sephardic Halakha says. I told him, what do you mean? Didn't you learn Shulchan Aruch for your Semicha exams? He said, yeah, but we follow the Ramah. I said, yeah, but the Ramah is a commentary on the Shulchan Aruch. 
didn't you, you read only the commentary and you didn't read the actual Shulchan Aruch? Meaning, did you read only Rashi and you skipped the Chumash? How do you forget one of the things? It's, it's an interesting development that we have in our world. So I told you I want to finish Gemilia's tonight, but allow me just to read a little bit more with you. Back in our encyclopedia on page 99. Mital Midav, from his students, Hayat Doresh, were five lines down. He demanded from his students an attitude of respect towards their rabbis. Someone who prays behind his rabbi, said Rabbi Yezer. And someone who says hello to their rabbi. And someone who responds shalom to their rabbi. And one who argues with the yeshiva of his rabbi. Someone who says something that he never heard from his rabbi. That's what he He doesn't say anything he didn't hear from his rabbis. He causes the Shekhinah to leave the Jewish people. Now, you could argue what's so wrong about praying behind your rabbi. I recommend take out a berachot, look inside at the commentaries there who try to explain. But the bottom line is, for whatever reason, Rabbi Eliezer is hypersensitive to the way students act around their rabbi. He says, anyone who rules halakha in front of their rabbi is liable for the death penalty. So if uh, it's happened to me before, I was sitting by Halaperetz, someone asks a question, oh, you want to answer? I, I can't answer here this question. This is his yeshiva, it's his midash. He's going to answer the question. Are you trying to get me killed? I can't answer halakha here. And he was very particular about the laws of respecting your father and mother. The students of Abeliezer once asked him in Masaret Kiddushin, Until when? Until how much do you have to respect your parents? He said, Go and see what one non-Jewish man did in Ashkelon. It's familiar at the time, Ashkelon was not necessarily a Jewish place. His name was Dama Benetina. The Chachamim and the Mikdash were missing one of the gems for the breastplate of the Kohen Gadol. And they needed it. And someone told them that this man in Ashkelon, this non-Jewish man, he was in possession of one of those stones. And he said that the key to the safe was under the pillow of his father who was now sleeping. And he refused to go wake up his father to get the key to sell the stone to make 600,000 coins value profit. He says, you want to know how much? Even you should be willing to lose the biggest, biggest business deal of your life in order to respect your parents. He very much appreciated tefillah. But the most important principle of tefillah, it must flow from the deepest parts of your heart. It should not become a matter of rote, of habit. Prayers that you just mumble with your lips, with no heart inside of them. As he says in Mishnah Berachot, Anyone who turns his tefillah into a regular rote, his tefillah is not considered a supplication. Meaning, it seems that Rabbi Eliezer was opposed in some way to the over-standardization of tefillah. The more standardized your tefillah is, the more dangerous it is because maybe it won't be heartfelt. We almost live in a world where tefillah is only standardized. 
I would argue that there's a compromise here between standardized tefillah and individual tefillah. We have our standardized tefillah as the skeleton of tefillah. But you have to add your own things to tefillah. My shacharit and your shacharit shouldn't be the same. You should be praying for very different things than I'm praying for. I should be praying for different things than my wife is praying for. We're all living different lives that require different things. There's a famous machalokit in the, uh, among the poskim, whether you're allowed to insert personal prayers in the middle of the Amidah or not. Many of you do, but there's an argument whether you should or shouldn't. Somebody once asked Tara Peretz this question, and he said, I'm not certain that if a person doesn't, I'm not certain that a person who doesn't add in prayers, if he really fulfilled his obligation of tefillah. How did you just read what it says in the season? That's just simple prayer. That's not real prayer. Real prayer is when you make the tefillah yours. Maran, at the beginning of the Shulchan Aruch, says that it's better quality than quantity. You have to know what to cut out and what not to. But I, I will tell you, listen, for the people who make YouTube clips out of me online, and listen, I'm just telling you now. Not you people, the other people. Yeah? Uh, just like I say a short, a short Berkat Amazon, I also pray a shorter Sidul than you pray. I pray just as long as you pray, but I pray, I don't want to tell you if it's a half or a third or a quarter, but I pray much less than you pray. Because Maran rules that it's better to pray with more quality than to pray more things but have no quality in your tefillah. That's a simple rule in halakha. When I was in Baltimore, they took out all of the parts of Sadiqot that are repetitive. All the, how many times can you say, say it once with kavana and skip. Who gave you the right to edit the sidum? At the end of the day, I wouldn't do it. For me, this is one of the highlights of Sadiqot. But for them, that was something that it was just a bunch of mumbling. And you mumble it once, with kavanah, and then the rest of the time, don't just mumble it with no kavanah. Harav Peretz, when he says, Ashamnu Baganu, it doesn't say the same, Ashamnu Baganu, you and I say, we have, all have different avirot we have to talk to Kadosh Baruch about. Why are we just reading off a standardized list of avirot? Some of them we're not guilty of, and some of them we're so guilty of that we should add 10 more in the same category of things that we do wrong. Gazalnu, I don't know, when's the last time I stole from somebody? But other things, huh? I could add more. To the, that's the way that a person has to pray. If we look a little lower, Merit, many other ways in which one could steal. Right, okay, I give it to you. I give it to you. So Zev is right. Likely that was the wrong one to pick on. Okay, let's say a different one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's right. It's true. You know, this happens a lot. There are people, they call me. I'll tell them, I have 10 minutes to talk right now. If you need more time, I'll make an appointment with you. No, 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 it's just five minutes. 45 minutes later, they're still talking. And then what do they get upset? They get upset that the next time they call me, I don't answer. The reason is, I know that this person lies to me. I'm giving you, I, I have 10 I will give you full 10 minutes. But I can't give you more than that. I can't sit in a parking lot late to someone else's meeting. Because, so when a person, and then there are people who say, well, you have 10 minutes? I'm having a call. In nine minutes, they're off the phone. I will answer that person's call all the time. Because I know that, that person values time. They're not steal thieves of time. instructs the students, when you pray, you must know before whom you are standing. They ask him, Rabbi, teach us how to live life. And one of the things he tells them is when you pray, to be conscious of who you are standing before. 
Don't just pray. You're not praying to a wall. HaKadosh Baruch is here. You are standing before the king of kings. It's very interesting and telling the stories that our rabbis tell us about the length of tefillah. There's a story about one student who went down to pray, meaning he led the services. I told you before they used to go down to pray. He led the services before Rabbi Eliezer. And he took too long. This happens a lot. There are people who are non-professional chazanim, and they're and they, they don't know how long or short. When I lead the community in tefillah, I can't say the same amidah that I say when I pray privately. There are too many people waiting. And so therefore, when I'm a chazan, I have to pray a little bit differently than when I lead a community. That's all. My community is different than your community. If I'm in your community, likely I would never offer to lead tefillah because by the time I get my tefillin on, likely everybody else has already done shachrit and they're out the door. So there's a difference in the speed in which other places pray. The students of Ibn Yazil said, Rabbeinu, kama archan Look how long this guy is. He prays so excessively long. The top of page 100. Amar lehem, he told them, Kelum yoter Moshe Rabbeinu. He's not praying longer than Moshe Rabbeinu. Dikhti Beitz is about him and Devarim. Et arbaim hayom, et arbaim halayla. Forty days and forty nights. He didn't pray longer than Moshe Rabbeinu. Shuv ma'aseh b'tamid echad. And there was this, another student that came to pray. She'arad ifnei ha'tevab ifnei Rabbi Eliezer. Vayem mekatser yoter midai. And he prayed too short. Too quickly. Amrulo talmidav, his student said, Rabbeinu, kama katsran huzeh. Look how short this guy is in his prayers. He's too fast. Amar lehem. He says to them, Rabbi Eliezer, Klum mekatser yoter Moshe Rabbeinu. He doesn't pray shorter than Moshe Rabbeinu. Dikhtiv, like it says about Moshe Rabbeinu in the book of Bamidbar. El na'ar refanala. Who does he say that for? His sister. He prays, God, please heal her. Zehu. He doesn't say her name. He doesn't say where she comes from. He doesn't say, you could just say, that's a short tefillah. Meaning, Rabbi Eliezer is telling you, you can't overpray Moshe Rabbeinu and you can't underpray Moshe Rabbeinu. Prayer is a very flexible thing. The person has to know what they're praying for and how they pray. That always puzzled me, these modern Jewish stories. But a famous rabbi, and someone asked, could you please pray for my sister, my aunt, whatever it is. And I was like, oh, I can't pray for her because you didn't give me the right Hebrew name. So what? Are you not able to pray for somebody who doesn't have a Hebrew name? Are you not able to pray for somebody using their English name? Do you even need someone's name in order to pray for them? Because Moshe Rabbeinu didn't seem to get the memo. He just says, El Please God, heal her. Who's her? Guys, he's HaKadosh Baruch Hu. He's God. He can know exactly who you're talking about. You don't need to give him an address. You don't have to say, Hey, uh, I messed up on the address. Didn't go to the right place. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is the king over king of kings. He doesn't need you to specify exactly which. If you can, then there's maybe benefit to that. But if you can't, who cares? Says Rabbi Eliezer, Tefillah is very flexible. It's from one second to 40 days and 40 nights. In fact, when the rabbis were suggesting if a person cannot pray the full prayer, what prayer should they pray? What is an abbreviated version of tefillah? Listen to what Rabbi Eliezer suggests. There are a few different rabbis who suggest tefillot. Rabbi Eliezer says, Hashem, do your will in the heavens above. And give nachat, give goodness to those who fear you in this world and do ultimately that which is good in your eyes that's his tefillah do good there, do good down here ultimately you should do what's good in the world for you 
this is the short version of Rabbi Eliezer Sidur. In regards to his relationship with praying in public, there's a story about him in Masechet Berachot. By the way, if you wish to learn one tractate of Talmud well, take Masechet Berachot and study it from cover to cover, backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards. So many precious things are in Masechet Berachot. And if you want the next one, Masechet Shabbat. The story says so once he entered the synagogue, he did not find ten men that were able to pray in the because there were not enough people. He found nine. Maasa, what did he do? He freed his slave. And he completed the minyan with his slave. It's a very unusual story, by the way. But here, what is the status of a slave in Halakha? Are they Jewish? Are they not Jewish? Here he's clearly not Jewish. So what does he do? Okay, so here to the eager to be a Jewish slave, it could be a non-Jewish slave. A non-Jewish slave is halfway converted. And when we free them, they become fully Jewish. A Jewish slave is fully Jewish, but he's not obligated in all things. So in order to be obligated in certain things, he has to be free. In any which way, Rabbi Eliezer so much valued praying with a minyan, that he freed one of his slaves to help him join a minyan. Now, we could talk about rabbis and slavery at a different time. This is a story that I'm sharing here. sana. I don't know that I would use that word, but the author of the Zagapita said, he hated the nations of the world. And he definitely did not trust their kindness towards them. When is Rabbi Eliezer writing this? This is after the destruction of the Benedictash. Where was the world? Who are the goyim he's dealing with? You're dealing with Romans. These are people that all they want is to kill him and massacre his people and destroy his nation. And when they did good for us, he didn't believe them. She would teach the verse of Mishle. If you see the nations do good for the Jewish people, we're not talking here about individual non-Jews. He doesn't, uh, individual non-Jews are not uh, guilty in any which way of anything. But here he's talking about a nation. You see a nation that does good. People, it always amuses me when Jews, they fall for it every single time. When some politician does something for Israel or doesn't do something for Israel. Nobody in their life ever did something for Israel because they like the Jewish people. Get it over. Get, get, get it through your head. It never happened. It never will happen. Nobody, especially not a politician. The politician never does anything good because it's good. It's all to do with getting elected again or their ratings and whatever they need, but they need something. This is the only reason why the nations do good for us, the Romans, why they're doing good things to us, because they want to show off to the world how good they are. That's why they're doing it. Haya Omer, he would say, anybody who would eat the bread that was baked by non-Jews, is like a person who's eating the flesh of a pig. I'll read one last paragraph to you. In Masechet Yevamot, he says that anybody who does not involve themselves with having children, is as if they are murdering someone. Meaning, it's not just killing someone that makes one guilty of killing, but not having children is avoiding creating new life. One might as well take a life. Now, there's obviously this is not a halachi, not one's considered a murderer for not having children. But we're trying to show the sharpness with which Rabbi Eliezer spoke. That's the purpose of this, right? Call me she yesh lo pat 
ואומר, מה אוכל למחר? anybody who has bread in his basket and asks, what am I going to eat tomorrow? meaning, you have, but you're worried about your parnasat tomorrow? אינו אלא מקטני אמונה. you are ultimately from one who is of small faith. ye of little faith. what does it say in the New Testament? this is מקטני אמונה. this is somebody who you have money. What are you worried about saving money for tomorrow? Tomorrow, HaKadosh Baruch will take care of you. Right now you have, that's all you need to worry about. And then he says, finally, in the Tosefta, This is probably one of the most famous and important teachings of Rabbi Eliezer I could possibly tell you. The person should always run away, stay away from anything that is ugly. But not only anything that is ugly, but even anything that is similar to that which is ugly. What does it mean? It means there are certain things that are bad and you're not doing them, but you're letting people think that you're doing them, or you're letting people think that you are around people who do them. Run away from anything that is perverse, anything that is ugly, anything that is bad. Don't just stay away from that which is bad, but stay away from anything that even appears to be bad. That's how careful a person has to be about their reputation. But ultimately, we've reached the end of the life of Ubi Yezav and Hokoros. Next week, Bezat Hashem, we're going to talk about the next of the five Talmidim of Rabban Yochanan ben Zakai. Someone reached out, not from the Shi'u, why it's taking us so long to get to the Rambam's introduction. In life, we are given opportunities. And we have opportunities to study together almost every day. HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave us the gift of studying the Rambam. You and I will be learning together for many more years. For right now, what's given in front of us is the opportunity to spend time, which we may have never done before, and go through the lives and the teachings of every single one of the Chachamim that make up our tradition. That we know who these rabbis are. When you learn Talmud, I would love for you to know when you say, now you know who he is. You know what he was. You know where he lived. You know what he did. That's the only way these people become real to us. Their advice for our life becomes real to us. The struggles that they struggled with, we realize that they have advice they can give us. Mistakes that were made that we have to ensure will never again happen. Abutai Rabbi Eliezer was a sharp man, but that didn't make him a bad man, nor a negative man. He was a chacham. And sometimes chachamim speak harshly, because the things they are talking about are not simple things. They're not, there are some issues you cannot be neutral about. There are some issues you can't spend your whole life, I'm going to borrow a Yiddish word, being parve. You can't just be neutral your whole life. There are times in which you are obligated to stand up, to take a stand over issues. Rabbi Eliezer made a choice to take stands on certain issues. And maybe, ultimately, that was his downfall. The stand that he took, he climbed up a tree, the Chamim wouldn't let him, and ultimately he got thrown out of the Sanhedrin. But he did teach us. He taught us about conviction, about dedication, about belief in what we would call in Hebrew, he believed in the truth of his path. He believed that what he was doing was correct. I once, I recently actually on Shabbat, I told my parents and my wife and children, I look at other Jewish groups around us and I pray for one ounce, forgive me for what I'm going to say right now, I pray for one ounce of their confidence. They are so ignorant and arrogant that they ooze confidence in the way in which they believe things, in the way in which they do things. I don't want to be arrogant or ignorant like them. But they have some trick in telling the whole world, especially their families, that the way we do things is the only way, it's the highway, it's a, like what Yeshu said, there's only one way to God and that's through me. I wish that we adopt a little bit, an ounce of that conviction 
in the things that we believe are right. Instead of apologizing for the things that we believe, instead of tripping over ourselves and the reason why we observe halakha this way, or why we pray this way, or why we do X, Y, just to once stand up and say, I am proud of the things that I do, so proud that I'm going to tell my children, I'm not apologizing for the Judaism that I believe in. And doesn't exist, don't talk about it. It's I, so I, I obviously am looking at that negatively. But I'm telling you for us, we're allowed to adopt certain character traits. And one of them is conviction. Conviction and the beliefs that we have in the way that we do things is correct. And not in a sense of arrogance, definitely not from ignorance, but from a place that really it's okay to believe in the things that you believe. And if you have to pay the ultimate price, Rabbi Eliezer was willing to do it. He was an example of a man who was willing to spend his life in isolation as long as he would be doing what he believed to be that was right. And I bless us all, like I said, a little bit of that. Until then, I wish everybody a lot of tov, and God willing, I will see you next on Thursday night.